Good morning. I believe we are ready to begin. My name is Al Dewick. I'm Chair of Integration here at Fuller, and I'm also the coordinator of this conference, together with a marvelous staff who has been incredibly helpful. Welcome to the second of our lectures in this series on the, the pearls and perils of international work. Dr. Kelly O'Donnell is our featured speaker, who is extremely, who's, who's been, who's very well known in the area of member care and has worked in this area together with his wife, Michelle, for the last 20-some years. I think it is time that psychologists look beyond the borders of their own countries and that we become shaped by the cultures that are beyond us, that we develop a global perspective and that it profoundly shaped the way in which we train psychologists and the way we look at our own understanding of healing. And Fuller School of Psychology has just adopted a strategic initiative of internationalization. We want to focus on the international setting and ask how that is going to affect us as we train students. I noticed last night that some of you were madly banging away on your computers and I could hear bone against keys. Let me tell you, we will post each of these lectures in two weeks on the integration website. And the, this is being videotaped. Uh, this is my better side. Um, <laughs> this is being videotaped and will be posted on iTunes. Uh, no, that's not YouTube, sorry iTunes uh, in a couple of weeks as well. The restrooms are outside to the right. Um, let me also welcome different groups of people who are here. We've got students who have traveled incredible distance to be here. I want the University of St. Thomas faculty member and students to rise. Where are they? There they are. Uh, Point Loma. Where are the Point Loma folks? There they are. Rosemead School of Psychology. Anybody from Rosemead? Our speaker is holding up. Anyone from Pepperdine? Any Pepperdine folks? Uh, the Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary in Fresno. There, there we go. Trinity Western University. Yeah. Fuller alumni. Hey, look at that. Fuller alumni. And current Fuller students. Okay. And then all the rest of you. Welcome. Let me begin with a word of prayer. In all of your creativity, O oh God, you have created cultures which are beautiful and diverse. And in each, you have been present, even when we didn't know it. We are grateful for your Son, Jesus, who helps us to know your presence. We pray that we might, in humble and transparent ways, move among people who are different from ourselves. For we know that you have loved them before we have loved them. We are grateful to be a part of their worlds. We have sought to be faithful to our calling, to your invitation that we would share who you are with the rest of the world. We pray that we might do that with kindness, humility, and graciousness. Be with us now as we reflect on the ways in which we as organizations can be healthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kelly, let me call on you. Let's give him a hand. How's the mic? Is it on yet? Okay. Yes? No. Not yet. Oh, here we go. Put it up higher, honey. Is my tiger straight? Just kidding. Okay. Uh, it's great to be here. 
other faculty, Dr. Duick, Dr. Erickson, and many others that have supported and encouraged me and my wife over the years and for bringing us here at this time to be able to share about global member care and the specific topic today, which is on managing dysfunction and promoting health in Christian mission and Christian aid. Last night, if you weren't here, we looked at more of some of the, the pearls, you might say, not the perils, pearls in terms of some of the historical milestones that have helped shape and develop the member care field. We looked at a second area, which we referred to, I referred to as listening to our global voices. So not just learning from the past, but listening currently to some of the anxieties and cries of humanity, as well as Christian workers and the recipients of Christian aid and Christian mission endeavor. What are they saying and what are some of their, their uh, comments in Christ? The third area we looked at last night was more envisioning the future. What could the future look like, future directions? What are some of the treasures, the new treasures and the old treasures that we can bring together to help shape member care and to help support and deal and help um, cal areas of calamity, areas of conflict, and whatever God calls us to? Today, we're shifting from the pearls more and looking more at the perils. What are some of the perils that we face as we try to practice psychology, as we try to minister in different ways across the world? If there were one chapter and anything written in human history that I missed during my excellent training at Rosemead, just to give you a bit of a heads up, how would you fill in that blank, by the way? If there were one chapter in my education that I could, what would it be? It would be chapter 15 of The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. We'll get to this in a second, but the essence of why this was so relevant is because it brought together the relevance of vice and structural evil and leadership evil and the necessity to deal with that and to understand it. Not to emulate it, but to be aware that as we go out in ministry or as we go out in life in human, as humans, we will experience vice and areas of evil that will confront us and challenge us. And what do we do with that? Being trained at a more intrapsychic pathology level was fantastic. Even systems understanding was fantastic. But the structural evil, whether it's political or organizational, and the deviance that we see there was something which I need to really develop. There's a Latin term, being raised Roman Catholic, that I remember a phrase which says, in intellectu non prius fuerit in sensu, which means nothing is in the mind which was not first in the senses. I hope I could spare some of us today the need to experience evil, structural evil, organizational issues, struggles, yourselves, so that perhaps you could benefit from articles and the experience and readings from others so you don't have to have the experiential uh, reality in order to develop some of the wisdom that you might have to later. There's another Latin term I remember which has been very uh, influential. It's from the, the Lord's Prayer. It's at libranos amalo, the heart cry in prayer one of the hard cries and prayers of the church, deliver us from evil, Lord. We're not just talking about differences, which are all over the place, which are normal, healthy, lead to growth many times, differences among us, cultural, disciplinary, personal. We're not just talking about dysfunction, but we're heading in the direction today towards deviance, outright distortions with the intent to harm, outright denials of reality and responsibility, that undermine our self-esteem and the self-esteem of our workers. And we're out, and we're not just looking at deviance and human deviance, but underlying all of this are the nefarious schemes of the evil one, the demonic. So the Ds, differences, dysfunction, deviance, and the mnemonic. And all of that we're going to try to package together in about 40-minute presentation. So <laughs> good luck. I do want to thank the panel last night for their excellent comments and feedback. I assure you I will be incorporating that in some of the revisions of the article that I'm doing. And uh, I have a list of a number of things, but I will not take the time to point it out. But thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Um, over the last three years, it's been quite a journey for my wife and I and many colleagues. Last night, if I could typify uh, what the ink of the article or the presentation was written in, I would say it was written in sweat. A lot of hard work with many colleagues to help further shape and form the member care field, envision the future, support uh, folks around the world. Later this afternoon, later today, we'll look at ethics 
And if I could typify the type of ink that that article and that presentation was written in, it would be more tears, seeing poor practice, seeing its impact on people, and the need to upgrade our ethics and to incorporate human rights in our understanding of what it means to do member care well. And the third kind of ink, you know, this expression, blood, sweat, and tears, that's where I'm going. I've talked about sweat, I've talked about tears, but this particular presentation has been written in blood in a very real sense by many, many people and colleagues who have struggled to try to find healthy systems, who have blown whistles, and who have had to face some very devastating consequences in following Christ in mission, dealing with governments that are hostile to the Christian faith, and dealing with dysfunctional systems within the church, within mission settings, that hurt our people, and indeed have hurt some of our member care professionals as well. So we're going in the direction of deviance and dysfunction this morning. Uh, wise as doves and innocent as serpents, my goal is to help all of us not find ourselves inside of some systemic snake or some human snake one day and realize, how did I get here? Three goals. Let's discuss the nature of human and organizational dysfunction. That includes the issue of staff abuse and fraud. Let's identify five resources for all of us that are going to help us in our organizations to promote health and healthy relationships. And let's identify some core principles for dealing with dysfunction in your life and work. So we really hope this is not going to be just an academic time or just a lecture, but there will be some practical tools and things that will stimulate you when you'll walk away from here, resources and ideas to help prevent you and the people that you work with from becoming wise doves inside innocent serpents. <coughs> this is another way in a pictorial form to look at what we're doing. What are some of the mechanisms, some of the safeguards we need to inculcate in our organizations as well as in our own lifestyles mentality to deal with the reality of lo malo, the evil in the world, the not perfect? What are some of these tools? What are some of these safeguards? The topic is very dark, and one of the uh, protective mechanisms for my wife and I is to take some time to experience beauty in some uh, neat way. I don't know what one of your favorite places of the world is. Think of a place that for you is peaceful, it's lovely. And as we approach this area of dysfunction and deviance, I encourage you maybe to write a little note or just reflect on what do you do for your own sanity? What do you do when you deal with the grime and the muck of the world? How do you, how do you debrief? How do you get clean, as it were? For us, we go on some trips sometimes, and this is one place that uh, we absolutely love. This is in County Donegal in Ireland. It's Franciscan Friary, Ard's Friary. And so I thought our prayer is that may we see beauty and may we do good in spite of whatever pain and darkness. Let's continue to do good, and in order to do that, we need refreshment and courage. Here's a heads up in terms of some of the principles that have helped us in our work with uh, organizational dysfunction. Zechariah 8, 19, chapter 8 says, in two places, I want you, God says, to love truth and peace. Another part of the member care coinage I mentioned last night, two sides of the member care currency. We must love truth, we must love peace. If all we do is love truth, we're going to kill each other prophetically and bang each other up. If all we do is love peace, 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 then how are we going to grow and how are we going to confront darkness and, to, and confront sin and things like that, of course. So we must love truth and peace. Second, the, the command in Scripture, uh, Paul, Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, the sterile deeds of darkness, but rather unmask them, expose them. Pull out the mask because darkness in all of its forms, even, quote, Christian darkness, is disguised. We need to find ways to unmask it in ways that will really promote health and without strain into some extreme form where there's devils and dysfunction and everything behind every door. How do we unmask that? What, is that? what does that mean practically? We're going to be doing that, and this is a core value, a core principle for us. Third, hold your ground and do your best not to become toxic. Those that are exposed to snakes and are swallowed by snakes become toxic. When you confront darkness and toxicity, dysfunction, it's very easy to take on some of those values and some of that that aspect. Proverbs 25, verse 26 says, like a contaminated spring and like a polluted well, so are the righteous who give way before the unrighteous. There is a time and a place to take a stand, and it's very, very important, I think. Probably can re uh, recognize a number of times in your own life 
where you've had to do that, and it might have cost you considerably. Fourth area, we overcome evil by doing good. We persevere, we do good, we do good, we do good, regardless of the consequence. Love. This is all well and good. It's nice to talk about principles, it's nice to talk about how we can promote health and so forth. But the biggest reality, and this is feedback I got from a, a psychologist who reviewed this paper. He said, this is great, Kelly, but this is what really you need to talk about. Okay. The biggest challenge in many of our uh, Christian systems is that the person, the subgroup, or the system with the most power determines what is dysfunctional. What gets labeled as dysfunction is determined, speaking in broad terms, and arguably, you know, I'm okay with that if you want to argue or debate. Also, it's not just what is dysfunctional, but who needs discipline? What is right and what is wrong? It's very Machiavellian in a sense, person with the most power. Also, related to this is what one colleague in the Middle East said, you know, I am sick and tired of the golden rule. And I thought, what do you mean? You're a Christian leader, you know, doing to others. He said, no, this, this is golden rule number two. This is the reality out there in some settings. It's the person with the most bold rules. Now, I'm being extreme. I love organizations. We need organizations. There's so many healthy organizations and examples. And more often than not, the problem is me rather than the leaders, okay, the organization. And many, and many times, other times, you know, it's mixed. So I don't want to go to an extreme, but this is a dynamic in human nature and organizational life. A couple anecdotes, the rule of law. We have principles, we have policies that we are accountable to, and we will hold them out. The rule of law, which increasingly has been established in human history, and I hope in organizational history as well, too. Second, commitments to human rights. We respect one another. We value your dignity and your worth as people who are made in the Imago Dei. And then finally, moral courage. Do we have the courage to find culturally and organizationally appropriate ways to give each other feedback, to share what our share what our relational reality is, what's really going on for us? Do we have those mechanisms in place? This, for me, is the sine qua non, transparency and openness in an organization in an appropriate way where we can hear one another, which determines whether or not an organization or individual stray into an area of dysfunction. It has to do with naming reality, accurately giving one another feedback. It has to do with the courage to unmask darkness in our own lives, as well as in terms of organizational practice. I think you could argue that you learn dysfunction developmentally in an early stage. It gets modeled, but there's always consequences. Just world theory and social psych. It'll come back to haunt you. Uh, I mentioned Machiavelli, and um, he, one of his basic premises, this is from chapter 15 of The Prince, is that we need to know, if you look at the yellow, we need to know how to do wrong and how to make, the, how to make use of vice and wrong and, and not according to, uh, and to use it or not according to necessity. Now, I'm not advocating for this approach. I am just pointing out that this is often a dysfunctional reality that exists, and we have to recognize it. And if we, being trained pretty much as a Rogerian with kind of a dynamic slant, if we assume that all of humanity, if we just listen to them enough, or hold them enough, and nurture them enough, will become more congruent and even more moral, I think we're in for a huge surprise. The world runs on real politics, on Machiavellian stuff. Machiavelli said that the ruler who wants to stay in power and keep the state and help the people survive and stay safe needs to use both virtue and vice, in order to obtain those goals. Now, whether we like it or not, that's a strong influence in some of our organizations. We need money to keep our organizations going. We need to give good reports, annual summaries of things, and what are we willing to do in order to maintain our organization and our positions of power? And that is not necessarily a negative thing, it's just how we go about doing it. Okay, maybe enough said about Machiavelli, but if you ever Google chapter 15 of The Prince, I think you'll catch the core of Machiavelli in less than one page. I've talked about developmentally, staying safe, dealing with issues like dysfunction, problems, it's part of life. We stay safe, it's something we learn from the day that we are born. We don't eat every plant we find in the field. We don't cross streets without looking. We watch our money, our belts, our money belts, our handbags. 
We're learning about how life works, the dangers, the practicalities, and the wonders. It's an ongoing and essential part of our organizational lives as well. What we're talking about today, developmentally speaking, is continuous. There's continuity between what we learned as kids. It's nothing new. It's just an organizational, a ministry application of what we've learned as kids. There's continuity for staying safe throughout our lives, including before, during, and after our inter international assignments and lifestyle. Here's a short excerpt from uh, 1919, Horacio Quiroga, The Blind Doe. There once was a blind, uh, there once was a beloved doe. Her mother taught her how to survive. Before the doe could venture on her own, she had to repeat each day at sunrise and thus learn well the Lord's Prayer of the Deer. And this is what it says. Smell well before you eat, because some plants are poisonous. Two, watch and wait before drinking to make sure that there are no crocodiles in the river. Three, every half hour, lift your head and smell the wind to recognize the scent of the tiger. And four, always look between the weeds when you eat field grass to see if there are vipers. Now, we're not doe, and there's no crocodiles, I think, are there in Pasadena? But metaphorically speaking, what are some of these dangerous things in nature that we learn to avoid, to recognize? In the book, The Gift of Fear, the author, I forget his name, talks about safety signals. What are the safety signals we learn throughout life that a system or a person is safe, is trustworthy? These basic fundamental skills that we learn in ki as kids sometimes get lost in our organizations, in an organizational life, because we defer to the judgment of the system or to organizations, and we stop trusting ourselves and our inner guts, oftentimes because we're afraid. There could be repercussions if we really speak out and give feedback. We could be demoted. We could be dismissed, perhaps. That's a bit of background, a little bit of a developmental aspect as well. Now I'd like to overview a bit more about dysfunction specifically. Well, the caption at the bottom of this Dennis the Menace comic says, we're going to see how far down the dirt goes. And the real framework for presenting this topic today has to do with health. It's not dysfunction. It's let's promote health. Let's just don't function because uh, focus on dysfunction because the dirt can go on and on and on. And it's not always edifying to dig it up, nor is it necessary. So we'll only dig so far, I promise you, and not go all the way down to China, as it were. OK, a quote from Stephen Benke, who's the director of ethics for the APA. A large part of what we do in psychotherapy is to try to understand people's motivations for distorting reality. This assertion is also true for organizational context in the mission and aid sector. So what we're looking at as an essence of dysfunction is a distortion of reality. How do we and how do organizations distort reality in order to achieve their ends in ways that aren't healthy for their staff or for the recipients of their services? Here's, can we as member care practitioners, pastors, leaders, can we admit mistakes? Can we say, I've been requiring someone to move 15 degrees to the east or to the west, but maybe I've been wrong? Can we do that? That is a sign of a healthy organization coming from the leadership down. The other side of that coin has to do with the lighthouse, not just in terms of our leaders and those that are modeling for us willingness to be vulnerable and make mistakes, but also our responsibility at different times to be lighthouses. I ain't going nowhere. I am staying right here because my integrity, and because of my commitment to the truth. And if there's consequences, fine. You want to slam your ship into me, fine. But I am staying right here. So there's two sides of this coin again, too. Uh, willingness for all of us to admit mistakes. And then at times when we have to draw a line and say, I go no further, regardless of consequences. So we're looking at two core things in organizational life systems. And we need to look at our relational reality. That is, the quality of our interpersonal relationships What's really going on among us? Do we have an ethos which really promotes the type of uh, authentic relationships and openness that we need with one another? And then secondly, not just our relational reality, but our commitment to build relational resiliency. We talk a lot about resiliency, often at an individual level, but relational resiliency is embodied in the term agape for me in the New Testament. We will love, we will love, we will love, and we will lay down our lives. We will be resilient relationally. We will go through hard times together over time and we will come out closer, Lord willing, with God's help. So our relationships are healthy and enduring in spite of the many challenges we face. 
So just think about it for a second. Think of your own setting, whether it's Fuller or another academic institution, your work context. What are some of the recognized ways that exist to review your relational reality? Do you have feedback forms? Do you have small groups where you talk about personal issues, work-related issues? See, these are safeguards. These are like these stones in that earlier illustration that filter out the oil or the pollutants. We need things like this, and at the relational level, not just the policy, not just a sheet of paper, but at the interpersonal level, that's where these stones primarily lie. Do we have the mechanisms in place where we can review what's going on for us in our organizational life? And then secondly, what helps or hinders the development of your relational resiliency? How do you stay strong when things are in place for you? Uh, do you honor one another for your birthdays? Do you go, each other, go out with each other for meals? Do you pray together? And so forth. What really strengthens your resiliency as a group? Love using this illustration, this little tool. We've used it with people that were held hostage and their leaders in different places where trust is a huge issue, where it seems like, for example, family members and the media and governments might not be trusting the Christian mission organizations because you sent your people in to proselytize in the Muslim context or so forth, and they receive a lot of flack, and you end up wondering, well, who can I really trust? Everyone's criticizing me and so forth. This is a great tool, though, for building trust and to shine light on our relational reality. So basically, the task is to draw a picture or write the name of a person up there who you feel safe with. Not a fair-weather friend, but someone who's a true friend. So who would you put up there? Would it be your spouse? Would there be anyone? We encourage people not to draw God up there, but an actual human. Second part, the corollary of this is, who would you not want to put up there? Is there anyone that you really don't trust? And third, who do you wish you could trust more and put up there? This is more, shall we say, right-brained. It's kind of fun in a way. It's helpful sometimes sit around and talk cognitively, you know, do surveys or whatever. But if we can use a little drawing technique, this is pretty transcultural in many ways. You know, you can just darken the person's skin or whatever. But people really gravitate to this and usually talk very openly about trust for them and why it's so important. This is a, a short case study. I'm going to jump into the area of fraud. This comes from a man uh, with his permission, David Harriman with Frontiers. How many of you remember in the, in the mid-1990s uh, the New Era scandal? The New Era philanthropy scandal. Now, I don't remember it. We got stuck with another fraud, another scandal later over in the European context, but I wish I had learned from what happened. Well, Frontiers, like many, many other organizations, had a choice to make when the New Era scandal went public, that people had lost millions of dollars, $350 million in terms of this investment fraud. What do they tell their supporters, their donors, that they have done with their money? Well, this is some, these are some reflections from David Harriman, one of the leaders in the United States of Frontiers. I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. We had won the trust of hundreds of donors who had given generously to help us obtain this matching offer. So for Frontiers, by the way, it was $350,000 that was going to be matched, I believe, so up to $700,000. So you give us $350,000, this philanthropic organization is going to give us another $350,000. Everyone wins, the kingdom is glorified, and we're going to support our workers and connect and help Muslims and so forth. Okay, we had taken their generous gifts and unwittingly put them into a fraudulent scheme, and there was little chance of getting their money back. Trust had been shattered. First, we had violated the trust of our donors by making these gifts. Our donors had placed their confidence in us. They found that this trust had been misplaced. Second, a man with criminal intent had exploited our trust. We had placed our reliance upon the integrity, ability, and character of a person and institution that reliance, that reliance had been a very serious mistake. Third, because so many Christian charities were involved, donor confidence in Christian ministries had been badly shaken our reputation and the reputation of the broader charitable community had been severely damaged. These were very, very dark days. Trust involves truth. It means breaking bad news when you have it. Being a truthful witness also means avoiding generalization, spin, or overstatement, or overstatement. Two points among many that we can make here, two I want to focus on is, first of all, it's very important to be truthful. Not just transparent, because we can be transparent in a legal sense, but not fully truthful about what's really going on financially or in our relational reality. No spin, no overstatement, no generalization. 
We made a mistake. Frontiers was not morally wrong or ethically wrong. Their due diligence was superb when you look at the paper trail, contacting lawyers, accountants about this investment offer. Everyone was doing it, and it looked great. But they had the moral courage and the guts to tell people, we made a mistake, we were duped, and we have let you down, and we take responsibility for that. That is a sign of organizational health. That is a sheer antidote to dysfunction and to be exploited by the evil one. But there's something else that they did. They took it a step further. And they empathized and related to not just their own tragedy, but to how that impacted many other Christian charities. And they formed with others part of a group called the United Response to Near Era. And they helped, like, um, what's his name? Caleb and Joshua, as they entered the, the, the promised land. They focused on the needs of others before they had their own needs met. So they fought and worked for, like, what was it, 40 years, I think, before Caleb said, give me this land, give me this mountain area, which was promised. So they were very concerned about others and just not their own interest. Another antidote, another healthy sign. We're concerned not just with our own interests, but the interests of others. It's not just the financial and reputation costs, however, but the human costs as well that must be remembered. Cynthia Cooper, in her account of the impact of the WorldCom, reminds us this. She says, numbers and accounts are only partly what hung in the balance in this fraud. What happened touched real people. The man who lost his children's college fund, the elderly lady whose life savings disappeared, the employee living paycheck to paycheck and struggling to find another job. It also affected the families of those involved in the wrongdoing who, on an emotional level, would endure the pain and serve prison sentences along with their loved ones. So we're not just talking about finances. The reputation of our Lord Jesus and of the church is at stake here. And we're not just talking about fraud. We're talking about anything that could dishonor our Lord and our work, any type of impropriety or wrong action. Jesus said, and it's recorded in Luke, beware and be on your guard of every form of greed. Every form of greed, not just financial. Greed for our success. Greed for notoriety for our institution. Greed for our reputation to be esteemed above others, rather than willing to lick the dust if necessary in order to see the kingdom of God established. Beware of every form of greed, not just financial. This is one of the main points I'd like to make. And in the literature, especially a book called Snakes and Suits by um, Buziak and Hare, H-A-R-E, it's Har or Hare, don't know how to pronounce his name, who are authorities in the area of psychop uh, psychopathy and sociopathy. This is what makes us as Christians very vulnerable, the notion of affinity groups. There's something about our dynamics that make us easy prey to social predators. And here's some of the principles here from this book. Affinity groups, religious, political, or, so, or social groups to which all members share common values or beliefs are particularly attractive to psychopaths because the collective trust that members of these groups have in one another. Those who perpetuate affinity and similar frauds rely on the common belief system of the group members for cover. As long as the psychopath can accurately espouse these beliefs while in the presence of group members, the true motives are less likely to be discovered. Religious belief groups open to new members joining from all lifestyles, readily assume that those who join them hold similar beliefs and values and tend to focus on professed beliefs and values and to forgive past transgressions. These noble qualities, however, make them easy targets for manipulation by unscrupulous fraudsters. This type of fraud is disturbing because of the ease with which a social predator infiltrates, cons, and manipulates affinity groups. It is also a testament to the power of impression management and to the tendency of many to be influenced by style more than substance. There is a lot to unpack there. I'm just going to leave it with you. But the question we should walk away from here after this lecture is, in what ways are we vulnerable in our faith-based communities, not just to fraud, but to anything that could seriously derail us from the central tenets of Christianity and acting with integrity and creating healthy environments for work. Uh, earlier last, or la middle of last year, there was a joint report by Transparency International, the Feinstein Center at Tufts University, and the Humanitarian Practice Group in the UK. And in the executive summary, which looked at corruption in the sector for humanitarian assistance, uh, they, they said this. 
these findings, this, this research report they did on corruption. Uh, these findings suggest that many humanitarian workers have a narrow view of what constitutes corruption, seeing it primarily as a financial issue rather than as an abuse of power, including areas like nepotism, cronyism, sexual exploitation and abuse, coercion and intimidation of humanitarian staff and aid recipients for personal, social, or political gain, manipulation of assessments, targeting, and registration to favor particular groups, and diversion of assistance to non-target groups. See, the main point of this is, first of all, we are going to bring this out in the open. This is a landmark 30-page report and document, which is available for free, available for free online. And to unmask the darkness, as it says in Ephesians 5, this is, quote, secular. If they're struggling with this and doing this too, how much more should we as the church be willing to unmask our own darkness at times? And what does this mean for us? How is this in operation in our midst? See, the, the most alarming thing for several colleagues and myself and my wife over, over the last few years was we thought, well, this is, this is a secular problem. Yeah, we have issues in the church. We have sin. There's moral failure. Pastors sleep with, you know, people sleep with others' wives, blah, blah, blah. It's always in someone else's pew or someone else's back garden. But when it comes knocking face to face and confronts you and rips you off and intimidates you, kills you, then you begin to realize that, oh my gosh, what the prophets and the apostles have said in the New Testament, what the secular prophets have said all along is really true. And without lapsing into paranoia, you start wondering, how do I develop the safety mechanisms in my sphere of influence and in my own life to prevent this type of thing? So the question, another question for us to consider, are we being wise as doves as we interact with humans and systems that may be, quote, innocent as serpents? Truth without grace may be brutal, but the opposite is true. Grace without truth can be lethal for ourselves. And if there was a propensity, a tendency in the mission community, it would be very to be very mercy-oriented, which is appropriate, of course. But we need that balancing aspect of truth and putting mechanisms in place where we can see our relational and organizational reality to help us. Okay, here's uh, one definition of dysfunction. I'm referring to a consistent pattern of relating to oneself and to others that is hurtful or toxic, characterized by such things as closed, secretive communication, high control, retaliation, and above all, denial. Denial of what is actually happening. Why is this so important? All this stuff we're talking about, am I just on a soapbox? Have I just been wounded or injured or any of us? And so we're on a, talking about this thing, you know? Am I the latest fad or thing to discuss? No. It's important because it just doesn't distress us. It just doesn't happen periodically. But it can be disabling. It can be deadly the psychological martyrs in our organizations due to organizational malfunction and organizational dysfunction is something very serious to consider. Those of us who work as therapists or counselors, when we hear some of the stories about how organizations can treat us either for the better or for the worse, are very aware of this. It can be deadly. It can destroy good people. It can destroy good projects. But above all, it dishonors God. It's not just about us. It's about God and are emulating his character and who he is. Uh, here's two core aspects of dysfunction. First of all, the area of poor leadership and management. And by the way, let me just back up and say, I respect our leaders. We need to respect our leaders. By and large, they're wonderful people. We all make mistakes. Everyone is dysfunctional in some sense, okay? And I'm not just saying we're all right and they're all wrong. But it's when we cross certain lines and organizations are set up with a strong ethos of fear, of lack of accountability, of lack of transparency. That's where the lines are crossed, and we must find ways to intervene, even if it is costly, as we'll see in some more examples. Okay, high control, withholding information, rigidity, legalism, intolerance of questioning, punitiveness, blaming others, and so on. Narcissistic traits, another area, not just poor leadership, but it's evidenced by the lack of satisfaction and a sense of optimism in staff. For example, feeling one is dispensable lack of work-life balance, lack of opportunities for development and learning, 
not being able to talk openly about the reality of the situation, not being able to express one's feelings unless they are positive, not being able to make mistakes, not doing anything outside of one's role, not being able to trust, not having the freedom to make mistakes. So let me ask you a question. What are three, just write this down because of time, you know, if this were a classroom we could discuss it, but what are three core characteristics in an organization that would make you want to be part of that organization and contribute? See, we focused a lot so far on negative things and all these bad things, but let's look at that, also be, be sure we look at the healthy signs, healthy aspects, and what makes you want to work somewhere and contribute? That could be a really group, a really good team building exercise. Get together with some folks and say, what is it about this organization or any organization that we're really wanting to fashion and experience? Some other things, going back to dysfunction, what makes it difficult? You know, why is it difficult to deal with dysfunction and put in mechanisms in place to manage it? It's compounded when no one sees it so clearly, when it's embedded in more functional behaviors. And a big one in terms of New Testament as well, this organization or this person is producing a lot of fruit. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. So if they're producing good fruits and their ministry is effective, therefore, they must have good character. They're not dysfunctional. Dysfunction, however, is often embedded, embedded systemically and personally in function. And it's hard to ferret it out sometimes. Or when no one wants to do anything about it or can do anything about it, it seems. It can be further compounded when the, by the various ways that all of us from different cultural, theological, generational, organizational backgrounds, how we do conflict resolution. And a big area there, cross-culturally speaking, is how do we show respect when discussing our concerns? How direct and emotionally expressive can we be? Is it appropriate when we share our concerns? Okay. All the ways of a person are clean in his or her own sight, it says in Proverbs, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Obviously, we know that when we deal with dysfunction, we might be pointing the finger at ourselves. When we look at differences and issues, the fact is that maybe we, not, we might not be seen so clearly. However, what I have seen in the evangelical mission and aid community is that we tend to point out, uh, we tend not to point out distortions, but to excuse them. It's a lot safer, it's a lot easier to just move on. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get involved. I just want to live in my little world. And by and large, that's okay, I think. That can be very prudent and very wise. There is a time, however, and a place for doing something more. We must not make a mountain out of a molehill, but we should not make a molehill out of a mountain either. And that happens. Okay, this is one of the core parts that I'd like to present to you. Four key components, the process, this function, four things. Let's call it four tasks of dysfunction. If we could pretend for a second that dysfunction was a person with purposes and intentionality, this would be its purposes. First of all, to deny that it even exists. The first task of dysfunction is to conceal itself. Don't ask about problems. Don't tell about problems in our organizational and work setting. This is a pervasive core unwritten rule. In short, deny reality. Secondly, downplay. If the, if the denial thing does not work, then the second task becomes getting folks to minimize it by downplaying its negative impact, stating that, well, the group of person is going through a normal stage of adjustment or simply acting as if it is not so important. Relational unity and conformity takes precedence over relational truth and connection, true connection. Third task of dysfunction deals with distracting us from its reality. If the above two things don't work, then the third task distract from the real issues, feign pain, get sympathy, or admit that something in a fuzzy way is not exactly right, and perhaps refer to problems as being a large, largely a matter of having different perspectives or preferences and so forth. Fuzzify things, if that's a word. In other words, distract. Change the subject or just talk about, about things in abstract, convoluted ways. That's also effective. There's little commitment to acknowledge real issues and little capacity to address them. Fourth, discredit. The above things don't work, then the fourth task, which can actually occur simultaneously with the previous three, is to discredit those who point dysfunction out, no matter how sensitively they try to do it. An atmosphere of fear and subtle intimidation are usually part of dysfunctional authoritarian systems. Fear of reprisal prevents, prevents people from speaking up, 
and advocating for healthy change. Another way of looking at this denial of reality is to refer to it as manipulated truth. This undermines trust in healthy relationships. This can be lethal. For instance, currently in the international business and financial world, there's a lot of emphasis on being transparent and accountable, yet transparency and accountability can be elusive and they can be manipulated for one's purposes. Even as a drop of toxin in a glass of water contaminates the water, so can a seemingly, quote, small, dysfunctional behavior such as covering up or just adjusting or withholding an important fact. Those things can pollute an otherwise transparent process and healthy system. Uh, in Newsweek in 2008, I believe it was June, Zachary Carabell said, and this is paraphrased, but the essence of it is this, transparency is understood to be a key part of good governance. The ideal seems to be that the more a company discloses about what is happening within it, the less chance there will be for misconduct and the greater chance there will be for effective performance. Yet companies and Christian organizations and institutions, okay, by application, companies can still be deceptive and commit fraud even if they disclose what they are required to do so legally. Two recent examples are Enron and um, Parmalat. They disclosed all kinds of data for statutory requirements in the United States and Europe. However, both companies deceived the public about what was really going on in their businesses. The issue was certainly not simply transparency. Rather, the real issue was telling the truth. A question. Let's just don't focus on the bad out there, but just look at our own bad or our own capacity to dupe or deceive ourselves. Why do we tolerate dysfunction? Are we duped? Are we self-duped? Perhaps we are. Some of the ways, believing that dysfunction could not really exist in our organization. How many of you like The Lord of the Rings? Tolkien? And I don't know which book it is. It must be the third one. But somewhere there's this account of how the hobbits in the Shire struggled to believe that Mordor even existed. Mordor, the dark realm, okay, in Middle Earth. And the second part of that struggle was not just the Mordor belief, but even if they did exist, they would never come to the Shire because we've never experienced this before. Does Mordor exist? Can we dupe ourselves by believing or pretending that Mordor does not exist? It certainly does. Look in the other way in the face of obvious dysfunction. Being reluctant to have one's life or ministry inconvenienced, fearing that we will be discredited, not making time to investigate the real facts about what's going on. These are all ways which we dupe ourselves. These are all tendencies that we have to find ways to counter and the way we counter these, I believe, is one another. Finding, getting input from one another, or in uh, Murray Bowen's terms, to differentiate ourselves from those systems. I call it, or I like to refer to it as keeping one foot out of the system and one foot in the system that we're in so that we can see as clearly as possible and getting outside input. Because of time, I need just to say, refer you to the, the article, there's five areas, five stones, five safeguards that I will just run through and... Um, I'm afraid I, don't, I won't take time to go into detail. Um, but what we're getting at with these five areas, five specific mechanisms that organizations can build into them to keep themselves healthy, what we're getting at is our virtuous behavior, to quote Charles Handy in Understanding Voluntary Organizations, our virtuous behavior doesn't really have to be so painful, provided that it's sensibly organized. So this is a management perspective. If we set up our organizations and manage them carefully, then the virtuous behavior that we're committed to, saving the world, helping the poor, helping the needy, it doesn't have to hurt so much because we hurt each other in our attempt to be virtuous and do good. Let's find ways not to do that so much. Healthy organizations have clear policies and procedures that are understood, recognized, and reviewed. They have ethical values and commit, uh, commitments. These are indicators of health. Yet even though when all these things are in place, there can still be a mess. One of our major consultants that we worked with in this fraud matter has said this. He's a management consultant. He said, policies and procedures are not enough. What people need, what people want, are good managers. And by good, we're talking about integrity and competence. It's not enough just to have the guidelines in place. If we don't have good, competent, and skillful managers, then those uh, guidelines are not going to be uh, utilized the way they need to. 
First area, five areas, develop and help our people develop interpersonal skills for dealing with conflict, for communicating regularly. And a key source for that is the, um, sorry, I'll get to that. Second area are guidelines for conflict, discipline, and restoration. So put some guidelines in place, not just for conflict management, but how do we restore people who fall, how do we uh, do discipline, so on. Third area, preventative safeguards, deals with guidelines for grievances and whistleblowing. A lot of organizations do not have these, and it's, it's uh, the Evangelical uh, Council for Financial Accountability has excellent guidelines here, and this will be in the article that you can download. Fourth area, to help organizational assessment, provide ways for staff to give feedback, set up structures for internal and external auditing, and put together quality board governance and, and quality boards for your organizations. Fifth, the area of human resources management. Stay in touch with this international uh, resource-rich field. This is not psychology. This is management stuff. And as I mentioned last night, another uh, two sides of the member care coin has to do with psychosocial support on one side and good management practices on the other. Both are necessary to do our work well, ethically, and effectively. Now, um, I'm essentially out of time, but if I can just fast forward to bringing all of these points together in the form of my 10 commandments, if you please, 10 core principles for dealing with toxicity and dysfunction. And to do that, I need to just scoot down a little bit. Uh, well, sorry, I wanna show you this one. I mentioned earlier, we call this one uh, wolves and wool. You know, there's snakes in suit, but this is wolves and wool, you know, that can deceive us. If we listen to the prophets and the apostles, if we take them seriously, we will not be duped organizationally and personally. It will be less difficult to be duped. These are some of the terms from the New American Standard Bible and the message for some of the things that are described within the church among believers, some of the people we deal with, and some of the systems as well. There's ravenous wolves, there's false Christs, there's antichrists, there's evil men, imposters, deceivers, there's frauds, snakes, reptilian sneaks, there's professional liars, deceitful, crooked workers, there's false brethren, so-called brother, a wicked man, there's false prophets, false apostles, false teachers, there's deceived, hypocritical liars with seared consciences and depraved minds, talking about my clientele a lot. Hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. And then in the message it says in three places, three words, three times, it says, don't be naive, don't be naive, don't be naive. The problem is the naivete that I've experienced in the mission and aid community is high. We have to set higher standards. We must upgrade. Okay, apologies for the small print. I'm going to go over three of the ten and just refer you to the article and then... Um, I will finish, I will conclude this morning. Based on personal experience, literature reviews, uh, and a lot of blood from a lot of colleagues, these are 10 things that I think can really help people deal with toxicity. First, we have to acknowledge that there's a con continuum of responses. It's not black and white always, and what we need to do depends on the situation, our sense from God, and so forth. This continuum ranges from prudently withdrawing and protecting oneself. Proverbs 27, verse 12, which says, uh, the prudent person sees evil coming and hides himself, all the way to the other end of the continuum, to prudently confronting and holding one's ground. Proverbs 25, 26, which I said earlier, like a polluted stream and a contaminated well, so are the righteous who give way before the unrighteous. We must act with integrity without wavering based on our convictions and, and wise advice. Uh, second, maybe I'll do more than three. Make room for cultural, generational, gender, and organizational variation. Just because someone offends us, we don't understand. We don't want to go the social psychology attribution route and label difference as deviance, of course. It's not deviance. Pre preferences are, also, are not usually pathogens. In many cultures, direct approaches may not be appreciated, no matter how diplomatic or respectful one is. Third, impartiality and objectivity do not necessarily imply neutrality. That 
is a key point, because I hear, well, I have to be impartial. I have to be neutral. But as Ayn Rand says in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, when there is evil and we're indifferent, we have to ask ourselves, what are we reinforcing and who are we betraying? Impartiality, neutrality is good, but it doesn't mean we don't have the responsibility to take some kind of action ethically. Don't be afraid to take a stand, but beware of seeing any party as all bad or all good. Truth packaged diplomatically is usually a good way forward. Talking in terms of behavior patterns rather than personality problems and situational influences rather than dispositional inadequacies may help make the input and process more acceptable. But we have to be realistic. Certain pervasive and ongoing character and systemic issues are not so amenable to change. Point four is absolutely essential. Confronting serious dysfunction is done as a group with solidarity, usually not by oneself. Get ongoing experience outside consultation, at times including legal advice. Don't simply rely on Bible verses or the advice of friends. Well-intentioned colleagues wanting to help, yet with limited understanding of dysfunction and discipline, can create even greater problems. Refer to any organizational policies for conflict resolution, grievances, whistleblowing. Ask yourselves, what are our goals? What are our likely outcomes? And what are the risks if we confront? Confrontation is usually a necessary step. Example, clinical recovery interventions prior to or as part of mediation and reconciliation approaches that involve dysfunction. This assumes, though, that, the, that there are people willing to take some risks and that there is an authority structure in place for leverage and accountability. Always include a historical review to help identify pervasive patterns. Focus on truth and justice and do so mercifully. But don't get sidetracked, please. Don't get duped simply by anyone's pain, whether their pain is real pain, embellished pain, or contrived pain. Six, core parts of the reconciliation process in dysfunction, toxic situations include truth, justice, contrition, forgiveness, restitution, and discipline. One of the greatest mistakes I have seen in my own life and in the lives of others where there's differences in toxicity is that we push prematurely for reconciliation because of a sub-biblical understanding of the reconciliation process, which does not include truth-telling, sharing wounds, asking for restitution, along with forgiveness, and seeking out justice. In our own inadequacies or insecurities, we push for premature reconciliation, in my opinion, without going the extra, extra kilometer or mile to see true justice and true reconciliation happen biblically. And um, I hope you know what I'm referring to there. Without verifiable contrition and change, sometimes all we can do is cut our losses, move on, and entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Forgiveness is a command in scripture, however, that we must intentionally pursue. Expect there to be diverging accounts of truth and deflecting responsibility, plus expect to be misunderstood, manipulated, and blamed. It's a messy process. We have to be willing to live with compromise, incomplete closure on important issues, minimal contrition, and partial justice. If you think you're going crazy as you deal with toxicity, well, you probably are. Dealing with toxicity takes a high toll on our sanity. Get outside reality checks and support. Don't overestimate your ability to repel toxicity or to avoid becoming toxic yourself. Bitterness defiles, so resist it. Two more. Trust, true trust is earned. It is not assumed. We need good reasons over time to deeply trust others, especially where there's a history of dysfunction. Trust is slowly built, it is easily broken, and it is slowly rebuilt. The other major error I've seen, not just in terms of recon uh, reconciliation, sub-biblical practices, is assuming that trust is there when it's not. What I call functional trust, which is based on minimal levels of trust just so we could work together, versus foundational trust, true friendship, which is only developed over time and over tough times together. What we want to cultivate in our relationships and our relational resiliency, our relational realities, organizationally, personally, is that type of true trust which, which resists the corrosive influences of toxicity and stands firm over time. And finally, maintain a solid biblical perspective as we deal with dysfunction. Our Lord cares for us often by refining us through desert experiences and through injustices. He zealously loves others, even dysfunctional people, as much as he loves us. 
We're all major debtors. We're all in need of unmerited mercy. So we've reviewed certain, uh, the nature of dysfunction. We looked very, very briefly at five protective factors involving good governance, good management that can really help safeguard our organizations. And then finally, we looked at some core tools, core principles, not tools, core principles for dealing with uh, toxicity and dysfunction. I know that's a lot to throw at all of us in a 50-minute session or so, but I hope you could read the article and continue in some of your uh, training and learning in this area. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kelly, for a dark lecture on Christian organizations and also hope. About two decades ago, I had a client who was referred to me, a missionary client. I listened to her over the period of a couple of weeks, and something was wrong. I couldn't understand what was going on. And it turns out, as I, as I listened carefully, the problem wasn't hers. She was the scapegoat of a missions agency. And they, were, they had expelled her, they had released her on very weak grounds. There had not been good evaluation, there had not been good communication. And therapy essentially was empowering her to respond back to the agency in terms of the issues. 